Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. Now, when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And large crowds followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. But he said to them, Not everyone can receive this saying, but only those to whom it is given. For there are eunuchs who have been so from birth, and there are eunuchs who have been made eunuchs by men, and there are eunuchs who have made themselves eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. Let the one who is able to receive this receive it. Father, we ask that you would allow us to receive now from your word, that as Jesus teaches us about faithfulness and unfaithfulness, you would call us to a greater faithfulness, not only call us, but give us the strength to answer that call. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Is anybody here worried about crime? Anybody worried that there's too much crime and that it would be good if we could maybe bring the, the levels of crime down? There is actually a way that we could accomplish this, and it's not that difficult. We could just get rid of the laws. Right? That would actually be very effective in reducing crime rates because the fewer laws you have, the less law-breaking you're going to have. If you just repeal the laws, then you will reduce the instances of crime. Right? We can eliminate drug crime immediately by eliminating drug laws. If you're worried about increases in property crime, we could get rid of that by decriminalizing theft. And then we wouldn't have anything to worry about. Honestly, you don't even have to repeal the laws. All you have to do is ignore them. Just don't enforce them. And if something manages to get in front of a judge, the judge could just help us out by reinterpreting the laws that are on the books to mean something different than what they appear to mean. And just like that, crime would go away. Always provided that the law is merely a human construct. Always provided that the law is just some sort of random thing that we've invented for ourselves and can do away with for ourselves. Because that approach to the problem doesn't fix anything if there's any correspondence between human law and some transcendent reality. 
if justice with a capital J is real, if that's really a thing, then just taking law off the books doesn't eliminate injustice. In other words, you can't just bend the law. You can't just bend the law if the law has anything to do with reality. If the law corresponds to reality, then then just bending it out of the way is going to accomplish nothing. Bending the law is what the Pharisees are doing in this instance. And Jesus rebukes them. Jesus says you can't bend the law. You can't bend the law and get away with it. Now, Matthew tells us that when the Pharisees approach Jesus, they're not inquiring in good faith. They're not curious about what Jesus may think about these things because they already know the word that Matthew uses there, testing him, because they already know how Jesus is going to answer their questions. They just want to snare him. They want to trip him up with their inquiry. But the question is, how do they know? How do they already know how Jesus would answer this question? Well, they know the same way that you know, because Jesus has already said this stuff. As you may recall, in Matthew's gospel, Jesus says essentially what he says here, back in chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount. Right after the Beatitudes, Jesus talks about lust And he talks about adultery and divorce, and he makes the same point there that he does here. This episode basically gives Jesus the opportunity to unpack a little bit what he already taught in Matthew 5. If you go back and look at Matthew 5, you'll find this in Matthew 5, verses 31 and 32. Jesus says, It was also said, Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery, and whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Right before that, if you go up to verse 27, Jesus uses that same way of of thinking to talk about adultery. He says, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Now that's a passage, if it sounds familiar to you, that that obviously we already looked at. I preached a whole sermon about this called The Unfaithful Heart, but that was back in February of 2022, because that's how long we've been working through Matthew's gospel. Uh, In case you don't remember that particular sermon, let me just uh, remind you that, that in that sermon, looking at Matthew 5, we saw Jesus essentially making two points. First, you can't excuse your lust because you keep it inside and don't act on it. Like, it's not okay to have sinful desire as long as you just don't act on it that the desire itself is corrupt. The desire itself is unrighteous. Jesus equates the desire with the action. Also, you can't excuse the hardness of your heart because you went through the legal motions or because you followed the culturally accepted norms. Anything less than God's standard is unrighteous. 
That was the point that Jesus was making in Matthew 5, and here he's returning to it, but it does present a difficulty. We were challenged by it then, we're challenged by it now. The difficulty is this, Jesus keeps saying the standard is higher than we think it is, that it's higher than the world around us says it is. But if it really is as high as Jesus says it is, then it's too high because no one can keep it. No one can do what Jesus is calling them to do. If we say that corrupt desire itself is wrong, not just the action, but the desire and that no law or cultural norm can excuse it, then no one is excluded. Then everyone is unrighteous. And that's exactly the point. That is exactly the point. None of us are meant to be able to read Matthew 5 and come out on the other side unscathed. And none of us are meant to be able to go through Matthew 19 and come out on the other side intact and confident. If we do, something is wrong. Anytime Jesus comes to you and he starts with these words, you have heard it said, get ready, because what he's about to do is going to skewer you. When he says, you have heard it said, but I say to you, whatever he says to you is going to be one of the hardest things you're ever going to hear. Because Jesus is never going to be saying, you've heard it said, things are difficult, but I say to you, they're easy. It's usually the other way around. So prepare yourself for that. If you can't sympathize with the Pharisees in Matthew 19, you can at least sympathize with the disciples, and they are every bit as distraught as the Pharisees with what Jesus says. Right, It's the disciples who, at the end of our passage, come back and say, well, I guess it's better not to get married then, if what Jesus is saying is true. It should give all of us the same pause that it gives them. They were pierced by what Jesus was teaching, and we should be too. So this passage presents, I think, two challenges for us to come to terms with. The first is, let's call it a cultural challenge, right? The disciples are being confronted by a cultural challenge, and so are we. In other words, they're being told by Jesus that something is wrong that their culture says is right. Like, they have grown up believing that the way divorce works is the way that the rabbis say it works. Now, Jesus is telling them, no, it's not that way. For the disciples who are not already married, the conclusion seems to be to avoid marriage at all. The ones who are already married and are now finding out uh, what they've gotten themselves into, those guys are probably silent at this moment, just reflecting on how terrible life can be sometimes. Right? That's the challenge. And as followers of Christ, we're always running into that. Right? We're always running into this, this cognitive dissonance, this tension, because we're being told that the world works this way. But then Jesus is saying, no, actually, righteousness works that way. And oftentimes, those things are intention. What we've assumed is good may be bad, and what we've assumed is bad may be good. And as I said last week, when the Bible is in conflict with literally everyone else that you will ever hear from, it is hard to hear what the Bible 
is saying. It is easier to listen to everyone else. So when we face a challenge like this, and we face it constantly as we study Scripture, uh, the thing to do is to push back. There's a lot of cultural inertia to say that whatever this is talking about, it must be wrong. Or whatever this is saying, there must be some way around it, and I don't need to pay any attention to what's happening here. But when you feel yourself going in that direction, push back. That's one challenge. Uh, The second one is more of a personal challenge, and I think this is always the case anytime our reading of Scripture takes us into the territory of sin. Because you never talk about sin in the abstract Because whatever the sin is, some of us will always be guilty of it. In fact, if what Jesus says is true, if it's the desired, not just the action that makes us guilty, then more of us are guilty than we realize. And that's hard. As a preacher of the gospel, one of the things that I'm supposed to say is that I don't care if you're offended. I don't worry about whether or not people will get the wrong idea and leave in a huff if I preach something that rubs them the wrong way because I preach them as I see them. I just follow the word of God. And that's true, and I aspire for that to be more true. And yet every week I do worry, not that the Bible will offend you, but that I might in the way that I present it to you, that I might get in the way, and that it might be harder to see what's here. So what I want to suggest to you is this. If you hear these words, and you immediately find yourself sort of tensing up, and like, I don't want to go there, I'm not going to think about this stuff, then again, push back. Push back. Because whether I say it well or not, Jesus has something to say to us here, and it's important for us to hear it. If you feel targeted, if you feel like you're being spoken to directly and that feels uncomfortable, uh, then hear me, you're not. But on the other hand, if you don't feel targeted, you are. Because it's the people who don't feel targeted that are the point. The Pharisees don't feel targeted by what Jesus is saying, and everyone should feel targeted because we're all implicated, because we've all tried to bend the law and tell ourselves that the sin that we do isn't sinful, that it's not what God says it is. When it comes to bending the law, we're all experts. We're all good at it by nature, but there are two fatal tendencies that the Pharisees exemplify here. Uh, Wherever there's a standard, we always look for the bare minimum. That's one tendency. Anytime there's a standard, we always look for the, the lowest threshold. The second tendency, wherever there's an exception, we bend it to accommodate everything. Whenever there's any exception made, we bend the exception to accommodate everything it can. So first, let's look at that tendency towards finding the bare minimum. There's one commentator on this passage who says, like, if the the episode of the rich young man asks the question, how high is the standard of righteousness, 
then this episode with the Pharisees asked the question, how low is the standard of righteousness? Like, how low can we go? How little can a man do and still consider himself righteous? That's the point. Like, like how bad can I be and still be good? Something like that. The Pharisees really uh, are like Jennifer Aniston's character in the classic movie Office Space, uh, 1999, uh, incredible workplace drama. She plays a, a woman named Joanna who works at a restaurant as a server. The name of the restaurant is Chotsky's. Some of you don't need me to tell you that. Uh, those familiar with it know the problem with Chotsky's is flair, that everybody who works at this restaurant has to wear flair, which is these expressive buttons that you pin onto your clothing. And Joanna wears 15 pieces of flair on her uniform because 15 is the minimum. Everybody has to wear at least 15. But then her boss comes to her and encourages her to wear more. Instead of the minimum standard, why don't you like do the maximum standard? He says to her, now if you feel the bare minimum is enough, then okay. But some people choose to wear more, and we encourage that. The Pharisees approach righteousness like it's flair. Like God is saying, you've got to wear righteousness. But the Pharisees are like, okay, but we're going to wear as little of it as we can and still be righteous. If you need 15 pieces of righteousness, we'll do it, but that's it. That's the attitude. In other words, they're looking for the lowest common denominator. They're looking for the bare necessity. Like, how loose can our interpretation of the law be and we're still righteous? That's one human tendency. We want to be righteous, but we want to know what's the bare minimum required in order to qualify. That second tendency is bending the exception. And this is a kind of circular pattern that you see over and over again. Once an exception to the rule is made, then we take that exception and we expand it until just about everything qualifies as an exception to the original rule, rendering the original rule meaningless. We bend the law until it's a law in name only. And that's what they've done with the law of divorce. Moses allows an exception. And then they come in and they define every circumstance so that it qualifies as the exception that is permitted so that, in effect, there is no law whatsoever. In Deuteronomy 24, you'll find Moses' instructions on divorce, and you'll find that Moses allows divorce on the basis of what he calls an indecency, that when it is discovered, results in the wife finding no favor in the eyes of of the husband. Essentially, it's the same exception that Jesus articulates here and in chapter 5. But in Deuteronomy, there are these words, he find, or she finds no favor in his eyes. And that expression the rabbis take and they run with it. And it turns out that can be made to say pretty much anything. Anything that a wife does might result in her finding no favor in her husband's 
eyes. Rabbi Akiva, in fact, says one of the ways a wife might lose favor is if he just, the husband, happens to favor another woman more. And therefore, the old wife has lost favor, and that justifies the divorce. So in other words, there is no law governing the practice any longer. In our sin, we always follow this pattern. This is always the way it goes. There's nothing that we can't justify. There's nothing that we can't rationalize. You show me the verse in the Bible that says what I've done is wrong, and I'll show you how to read it in such a way that what I did is not wrong. It might actually be right. People say, you can make the Bible say literally anything. And that's true as long as you're willing to twist it. And that is exactly the problem. That is exactly the problem. That our tendency when confronted is to take the rule and to twist it and to bend it, to mold it. Now, if biblical grounds for divorce are adultery, as we see here, and abandonment, as we see in 1 Corinthians 7, then we find a way to make literally everything fit into one of those two categories. How high is the standard? That's the question. What's the bare minimum for righteousness? Well, Jesus, when you ask him how high the standard is, says the standard is perfection. That's how high it is. If the question is how little faithfulness is required to still get in, Jesus answers and says, well, everything is required. Nothing is optional. God hasn't given us his word consisting of a few really important things and then a lot of stuff that's basically optional. Everything is required. If that was the last thing that Jesus had to say on the subject of sin, that would be terrifying. That everything is required, that perfect righteousness is the standard, that there is no way to bend the law and get around it. That would be terrifying. But the point is, that's not the last thing Jesus has to say. That's the first thing. That's the introduction. That's the pathway into understanding grace. Jesus brings us to a true sense of our sin, then reveals to us how the weight of that sin is lifted off our shoulders at the cross. The problem, the flaw with the Pharisees' reasoning and the flaw with ours is that what they want to do is start with the exception. What they want to do is start with the minimum, and all that does is minimize the problem of sin. Jesus says, don't start with the exception, start with the rule. If you've known me long enough, you know that uh, I'm a huge fan of Tim Keller's Reason for God videos. Um, Tim Keller and I have a complicated relationship because he's my wife's favorite pastor. And I'm not always at peace with that, but sometimes it's okay. And in this case, it is, because in the the video series that accompanies his book, The Reason for God, he doesn't just talk. He puts a round table of people together who don't agree with him on any of this stuff, and they talk through the various parts of the book together. And he fields their questions and then does his best to answer them from a biblical point of view. And it goes really well until one of the people in the circle realizes the way this guy keeps talking about the Bible and the the truth of the Bible, there's some conflict between what he must believe and what the world teaches. And so, not surprisingly, 
they ask him the question whether or not the Bible condemns homosexuality. His reply, basically, is actually it's much worse than that. All sexual behavior, all sexual desire, contrary to God's law, is condemned in Scripture. But instead of camping out on those condemnations, he does something interesting. Instead of focusing only on what God is against, he takes time to paint a positive picture of what God is for. Like what it is that God calls us to in contrast to what he condemns. The reason that filled me with so much uh, excitement is I just so rarely hear it done that way. I think the world knows us primarily for what we're against and doesn't really understand why we would be against half the things we're against because we never really talk about what we're for. So when Jesus talks about marriage, he's talking about what it's for. What's the good of it? Why did God institute it? And if you want to understand marriage from a biblical point of view, uh, there's at least three concepts you have to keep in mind. Uh, The first is that marriage is a creation ordinance. So as Jesus says, marriage is something instituted before the fall, like in the beginning. And Jesus says this should be our starting point for understanding marriage. In Genesis 2.24, he quotes this, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall be one flesh. Like the two become one, and that's God's purpose for them before sin has even entered into the picture. Marriage, like work, is a gift given to humanity before sin by God himself. And if we want to understand it, we have to start with that ideal. That's the creation ordinance. There's another concept, though, that's important, which is this, that marriage in Scripture is a covenantal, not a contractual relationship. There's a difference between the two. The Pharisees are looking at marriage and they're seeing a contract, a contract where the obligations are easily ended. But the Bible portrays marriage as a covenantal relationship where the bond is much stronger than that, where the obligations run deeper, and so do the blessings. It's interesting if you consider God's covenant with Abraham, also in the book of Genesis, and you look at some of the points of comparison, like God's covenant with Abraham involves a sacrifice of flesh to solemnize a deep union And the covenant centers on a promise of offspring, which is an interesting parallel to marriage as well. God says to Abraham, your very own son shall be your heir. And then he says, look toward heaven and number the stars, so shall your offspring be. It's interesting how that divine human covenant parallels the marriage covenant between man and wife. It's immediately after that verse, by the way, where Moses writes these words, and Abraham believed the Lord, and he counted it to him as righteousness. That's Genesis 15, 6. That declaration is what Paul quotes in Galatians 3 to show us that it was faith and not works that justified Abraham and us. So marriage, as God creates it, has that covenantal character, which makes sense because marriage, thirdly, is a typological picture of divine faithfulness. 
Like Paul makes this very clear in Ephesians 5. When he talks about the, the relationship between husbands and wives, he concludes those words by saying that this mystery of marriage is profound and it refers to Christ and the church. And so human marriage pictures the divine covenant between Christ and the church. That's why the metaphor of marriage is used throughout Scripture in describing the church. The church is Christ's bride. He is the bridegroom. We look forward to his return and the great wedding feast of the Lamb. It's written throughout the New Testament, but it's also in the Old. In the Old Testament, Yahweh and his chosen people are described as husband and wife. The idolatry of Israel is the equivalent of the unfaithfulness of an adulterous wife. Just as she might chase after other men, Israel chases after other gods. So the symbolism is interconnected. Marriage is meant to embody Christ-like faithfulness and selflessness. It's a picture of God's love set right here in our midst. So to treat it as the Pharisees do, to treat it as we do, is not only unrighteous, but it also conceals the picture of Christ's love as well. Treating marriage as a man-made contract puts the light of God's love under a bushel of hard-hearted expediency. Is it any wonder that Jesus rejects this view? What's interesting, though, to remember here as we talk about marriage as an ideal is that Jesus acknowledges to the disciples that it's not an ideal for everyone. It's not the path that God has for everyone. Right? Singleness also is a gift. The disciples say in verse 10, if such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. And a lot of people today would agree with that. They'd say, actually, the disciples are right about this one. If, if this is the way marriage is, it would be better not to get married, by which they mean it would be better to live together. It would be better not to make the commitment of marriage, which is weird. Because we as a culture see marriage as a contract, not a covenant, one that's easy to get out of, and yet we still, when we look at marriage, think it is too big a commitment and it would be better not to do it. We don't have time to explore all the ramifications of that, but it's interesting to think about. But for the disciples, that's not what the conversation is about. Things take a turn. They say it would be better not to marry, and then Jesus starts talking about eunuchs? And they have to be saying, wait, whoa, 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 who said anything about eunuchs, Lord? But those are the options. Like, in their world, there's, there's not like a, a, an in-between ground, or at least not an acceptable in-between ground. But Jesus talks about a state of being that is not substandard, that is not uh, secondary, that could actually be God's calling for a person, right? Jesus says to their idea that it's better not to marry, hey, not everyone can receive this, but the implication is that some can. This singleness is celibacy, not free love. And to us, it seems unthinkable that the church could call all those outside of this conception of biblical marriage to a life of celibacy, singleness. But it's not inconceivable to them. It's not inconceivable to Paul. 
The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7 says, I wish that all were as I myself am, unmarried. He wishes that upon people, but recognizes that not everyone has that calling, he says, but each has his own gift from God. Not everyone can receive this, Jesus says, only those to whom it is given. But this single celibate life is a gift, a worthy station to be called to. It's not something to be disparaged. It's not something to be despised. It was Paul's calling, just as it was the example of Jesus himself. I realize this is a hard teaching, right? Jesus is saying hard things to us. And people often complain about the hard teachings of Jesus. But when we do that, I think we miss the point. A hard problem might demand a hard solution. If the problem is hard, then maybe the only words that really address it will be the hard ones. Asking Jesus to be soft on sin is asking him to downplay his own sacrifice. You understand that, you realize you actually need Jesus to be hard on sin, not metaphorically, literally. Specifically, you need him to be hard on your sin. You need him to utterly destroy the power of your sin over your life and over your destiny because you can't bend the law to get around it. And you don't need to. It's not necessary Jesus did the hardest thing in the world by keeping the law and giving himself for us so that his righteousness can become yours. So the marriage is created as a symbol of faithfulness. The thing about a symbol is not its power. The thing about a symbol is the power that it points to. Human marriage is a symbol pointing to divine faithfulness. That's powerful symbolism. But it's not more than that. Your good marriage won't save you. Your faithfulness to your spouse won't save you. If we're at this point in the sermon, which is officially over time, and you still feel good about where you're sitting... You haven't been listening. Yes, you should aspire to faithfulness in marriage. And yes, you should aspire to faithfulness in singleness too. But if your actions don't betray you on those things, your desires will. You will still be found wanting. Which is why your claim to righteousness can never be, oh, I haven't been divorced, or I had biblical grounds, or I've never cheated. And which is why if you have been divorced, and if you didn't have biblical grounds, and if you have cheated, there is hope here for you as well. Because we're not saved by our righteousness. We're not saved by our law-keeping anymore than we can be saved by bending it. Your faithfulness won't save you. But Christ's faithfulness will The Apostle Paul says husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, but they don't. The good news is Jesus loves you as his own body. 
Paul says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. But they don't. The good news is, Jesus does. He gave himself up for us. He sanctifies us. He cleanses us by the washing of water with the word, as Paul says. And he presents us to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that we might be holy and without blemish. Your loving faithfulness could never accomplish that. But his does. But that's no reason for us to ditch the symbolism. That's no reason for us to devalue marriage. It's no reason for us not to take seriously the gifts and the signs that God has given us that speak to him and point to him. We need all the reminders we can get of Christ's love. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.